The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Tonight on The Readout. So help me God. So help me God. Now on behalf of all of the members of the court, I am pleased to welcome Justice Jackson to the court and to our common calling. historic transition coming at the end of the most activist and frankly destructive Supreme Court terms in more than a century. Also tonight, more criminal exposure for Trump and his January 6th enablers, including a potential criminal referral for witness tampering. But we begin tonight with a look back at what has been one of the most consequential and life-changing Supreme Court terms since the courts that overturned segregation and expanded women's rights. Only this court has done it all in reverse. Today was the last day that we heard from them this term. And actually, thank God. Because in the past month, the conservative majority has successfully weakened Miranda rights, kneecapped state gun safety laws, betrayed indigenous sovereignty, begun to dismantle the separation of church and state, and curtailed women's rights to privacy and liberty. And that was all before today. When in one of the court's final rulings this term, the 6-3 conservative majority effectively gutted the EPA's power to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, that contribute to global warming. Yep, at a time when the climate catastrophe is giving us a collective beatdown, when the UN recently warning, with the UN recently warning that we need to do something, not now, but right now, the court struck down this regulation that the EPA drafted under authority granted by the Clean Air Act, claiming that it amounts to an extraordinary overreach by the EPA. The decision will not only have major implications for the survivability of this planet, But it will also affect how the federal government more broadly can implement any regulations going forward. Emboldened by the ruling, the chief plaintiff, the Republican attorney general in West Virginia, Joe Manchin country, warned that they were just getting started. Coal in everyone's stocking this Christmas. This year's rulings really should not come as a surprise. They are the culmination of roughly a half century's worth of work by conservative politicians looking to remake the federal judiciary system after a period of what they viewed as radical progressivism. Now, make no mistake, these justices who swore under oath that they had no political opinions have proven that they very much do have a political agenda. And it all began back in 1991 with the contentious confirmation hearing of of Justice Clarence Thomas after surviving credible claims of sexual harassment and a bruising confirmation hearing. Justice Thomas made clear that he had an agenda and was ready for retribution. Back in 1993, the New York Times reported that Justice Thomas told two law clerks that he wanted to remain on the court until 2034. When they asked why, he reportedly said, the liberals made my life miserable for 43 years, and I'm going to make their lives miserable for 43 years. And if you had any doubt that he had an ax to grind, his wife, you know, the active insurrectionist, told People magazine that he doesn't owe any of the groups who opposed him anything. In the year 2000, Thomas was part of the 5-4 majority that took the extraordinary step of putting a stop to a Florida recount, effectively ending former Vice President Al Gore's presidential aspirations and putting the Republican majority on the court's preferred candidate, 
in the White House. Thomas is now the senior member of a group of conservative justices who now join his once extreme views and who always played and who also played a role in that Florida case. Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and Chief Justice John Roberts were all part of a team that was working for the Republicans during the recount battles in Florida, which culminated in the historic Supreme Court decision that the court majority was so embarrassed about. They wrote down that it should never be used as a precedent. Well, the embarrassment is gone. This summer, the conservative majority delivered yet another set of victories for the Republican Party and its ruling evangelical wing. During his confirmation hearing, Chief um, Chief Justice Roberts famously said that his job was to call balls and strikes and not to pitch or bat. It is clear that five of his colleagues do not ascribe to that policy because they are very much knocking balls out of the park for one team. Gone is the concept of judicial restraint. And in its place is the made up conservative philosophy of originalism. According to The Washington Post, taken together as a whole, the decisions mark for now the triumph of originalism, a radically conservative judicial philosophy that maintains that the only legitimate way to decide constitutional disputes is to ask how they would have been resolved when the Constitution was drafted. You know, at a time when no one except land-owning white males had any rights at all and when women weren't even mentioned in the Constitution. Unfortunately, you, you should probably brace yourselves for more because they are not done. This morning, the court agreed to hear a case on whether state legislatures should be immune from judicial oversight in state court when it comes to setting election rules. Republicans in North Carolina want the court to grant state legislatures immutable authority to gerrymander electoral maps and to pass voter suppression laws or to make voting rules without their state Supreme Courts being able to intervene or weigh in. In other words, the right to do exactly what Donald Trump wanted swing states to do as part of his January 6th coup attempt, just in time for 2024. And no, do not expect Clarence, husband of insurrectionist Ginny, to recuse. Joining me now is Erin Carmone, senior correspondent for New York Magazine. And Erin, it is good to see you, my friend. It has been been too long. Um, I know you wrote the very excellent hit book, um, The Notorious RBG. So you've been paying attention to the court for a long time. This court's radicalism, I think, is striking some people as a shock. I'm not sure why, but did it shock you? Well, I mean, I think it's important to remember that Justice Ginsburg became the notorious RBG. She earned that nickname by dissenting from conservative opinions, including the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. And so this is a direction that the court has been moving in. As you very well laid out, uh, there was an aberration in the court's history of protecting powerful people, of upholding slavery, of blocking women's rights uh, in the second half of the 20th century. And that has what is what has empowered this conservative legal movement. I think the difference that we're feeling now is the speed and the brazenness. So John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, I think, has a, a kind of savvy PR approach to how he chooses to do this. He usually likes to do at least two cases before he guts a major precedent so that he can then say, look, we did this before. He'll take a half step. He did this with the Voting Rights Act. He's done it with many other cases. He'll occasionally show his independence from the Republican Party, particularly when the Trump administration got really sloppy on certain issues. Um, And that allowed people to still think that in decisions like Obergefell uh, with Anthony Kennedy joining the liberals, some abortion rights opinions that weren't as bad as they could have been for a while. was sort of a treading water. But I think you're right to place it at Bush v. Gore. 
Clarence Thomas, when he joined the Supreme Court, he was the minority in ideologically. And I think that Bush v. Gore put the Supreme Court on a path for Clarence Thomas to be the intellectual vanguard leading the way, such that Brett Kavanaugh is now the median justice. Again, one of this team in Bush v. Gore. And I think it, one way to measure how much things have changed is that when uh, Justice Ginsburg dissented in Bush v. Gore, a lot was made of the fact that she didn't say, I respectfully dissent. She just said, I dissent. Uh, and that was considered, wow, really calling out her colleagues. Listen to the dissenting justices now. Um, and I should say, congratulations, Justice uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And also, I am very, very sorry, because she is about to join these ranks of the losers whose job it is to lay out very clearly in pages that the Supreme Court justices themselves can't ignore what's happened. And so here's Justice Kagan today in the EPA decision. She says, the current court is textualist only when being so suits it. When that method would frustrate broader goals, special canons like the major questions doctrine, this is something that they totally made up that's also gonna, that came to light in the EPA case and also in this case that's coming up uh, with the legislatures, magically appear as get out of text free cards. Now that's pretty out there and they, they were also pretty out there in the Roe decision. Uh, the, these institutionalist liberals that sit on the Supreme Court are actually warning us that as bad as things have been, they are getting worse really, really fast. And as you mentioned, they're about to get worse uh, for, for maybe as long as our lifetime, considering the age of these justices on the court now. And, and the thing is that, you know, I mean, you'd go to Kavanaugh. I mean, this is somebody whose memorable quote is what goes around comes around other than I like beer. Um, and that he essentially was threatening that, you know, he, that he's saying, I am going to politicize this court. Alito is pretty brazen in saying, no, we're a court that has desired outcomes. We're going to rule almost always in favor of conservative Christians, whatever they want. They're ruling at this point, they're 83 percent, whatever conservative Christians want, not religion, just conservative Christians. I haven't seen them do that for Muslims. I haven't seen them do that for any other religion, for Jewish people. Just conservative Christians. Just they're down the line for corporations, for, for wealthy people. They're pretty doctrinaire. The brazenness, I think, is what's new. They're not hiding the fact that they are an evangelical-minded, pro-conservative Christian and pro-Republican group. I think Bush v. Gore unleashed that, too. Do you? I do, absolutely. And I, I think it also, they've had a series of strategic plans that have gotten them to this point. They've also gotten lucky in terms of both deaths and retirements on the Supreme Court. Uh, the fact that so many conservatives galvanized and, and there was no punishment uh, for Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump. Uh, in fact, it, it helped Donald Trump that Scalia's seat was left open despite the norms. It turns out that so many of the, the things that govern the Supreme Court were actually sort of soft norms and politeness yes. and that there were enough Republican appointees that were willing to follow the rules and believe in the yep. institution of the court. But yep. there was yep. nothing really holding them except for some measure of political accountability. The moment yeah. Trump wins in 2016, yeah. that's gone. That that gives us Gorsuch, that gives us Kavanaugh. And, and wow, listening to Clarence Thomas um, talk about his feelings of vengeance and then yeah. have them be paralleled by Brett Kavanaugh, when both of them have been accused credibly of sexual harassment and attempted rape, I, I think it shows you that, that we are reaping the whirlwind yeah. right now and we're going to continue yeah. to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Irene Carmon, um, 
Thank you. Really want to talk to you today, so I'm really glad that you were around and able to do this. Really appreciate you. Um, and with me now is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. He serves on the Senate Judiciary Committee and the Environment and Public Works Committee. And, you know, Senator, we've talked about this before, but I mean, I think a lot of people were taken aback by the breathtaking politicization of this court. But it's long in the making. I mean, the thing is, to me, I'm surprised people are surprised. Leonard Leo has been very clear about who he is and what he wants. And this court has been very clear that they no longer worry about how it looks. And Roberts is not in control. It's the blatantly, brazenly partisan and political wing, the Trump wing, um, that is produced by presidents who haven't even won the popular vote that's in control. Um, are any of your colleagues within the Democratic caucus pretending to be surprised? No, I think, um, you know, we've seen this coming for a while. We were slow to figure it out, um, but I think we figured it out now. Um, there is a lot of pent up uh, anger and scorn in these new opinions, highly critical of previous Supreme Court justices, highly critical of regulatory officials, really um, almost cruel cutting commentary about people that they don't like. And yeah. then you've got, you know, this fabricated major questions doctrine that was grown in the Koch brothers uh, ideological hothouse. Now jumping from that into the law of the land in the yeah. uh, major and, and concurring opinions, let, so let, let's, there's a uh, there's a lot go going on, and they're not they're not being coy about it any longer. They're grabbing a, for all that they can. It, it's sort of like you know Donald Trump. They they have the same sort of ethos. We're just going to do this, and we don't care how how it looks. You know, today happens to be the anniversary of the Meat Inspection Act of 1906. Just for a little nerdery here, and it prohibited the sale of adulterated or misbranded livestock and derived products such as food and ensured that livestock were slaughtered and processed under sanitary conditions. Basically, it keeps us from dying from eating meat. I bring that up because the EPA decision today guts the regulatory state in a way that in the way that I'm looking at it could carry over to anything from not just saying, you know, them saying we, that the, the um, EPA cannot regulate essentially power plants. They can't do anything to protect our air then could, can the you know, agencies, the FDA, regulate our meat, make sure that that doesn't kill us? The actual holding of the decision was narrower. What's scary is the intellectual architecture, the ideological architecture that they built in this case, which will provide armament to attack, as you said, regulations in a whole bunch of areas in a whole bunch of ways. And I think this was really the goal of the people who spent all that money to pack the court. Over $500 million spent over years on packing the court and telling it what to do through all these front groups and cooking up these doctrines like the major questions doctrine in these uh, sort of, you know, ideological doctrine factories. And the court is just completely obedient to the forces that put these members onto the court. The, the thing is, is that the in the EPA ruling, they essentially said that the EPA does not have any authority to do these regulations unless Congress specifically passes. They'd have to, for each and every way that they want to regulate clean air, have to pass a law for it. Well, they do that knowing that nothing can pass, that the House can pass a thousand bills, the Senate can't pass any. So they know it'll never happen. So is it not the same as essentially saying we this ruling mandates deregulation because they know that the Senate, where you work, sir, is completely broken. The court created a massive political traffic jam in Congress 
with a the Citizens United decision allowing unlimited money into politics and B, not enforcing the transparency requirement of Citizens United. So there's billions and billions of dollars in dark money floating around, and that controls Congress. So they've said to the administrative regulatory folks, you can't do this any longer. It has to be done by Congress. And their earlier decision made it virtually impossible for Congress to do it. And the idea that they don't know what they're doing when they're doing this is, yeah. I think, uh, preposterous. They're serving a special interest uh, overlord that um, we've done a very weak job as Democrats of calling out over the years. I, I agree with that, sadly. A last question, and we are out of time. President Biden has indicated that now he does favor relaxing the filibuster or, or adjusting it um, to ensure women's rights. But you don't have 50 votes for that, right? Manchin and the Senate ain't going to allow that, are they? Nope. We do not have 50 votes for that. Yeah. There we go. You need you need, as you've said before, you need two to four more senators. Y'all are going to need 54 senators to do what needs to be done. Yeah. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, always appreciate you. Thank you. Uh, I come up next on the readout. It seems that banning abortion in their own states is not enough and not cruel enough for some Republicans. Now they want to punish you if you help someone cross state lines to get care. Welcome to Gilead under his eye. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Today, President Biden said he would support a filibuster exception to pass abortion rights into law, tweeting, we have to codify Roe v. Wade into law. If the filibuster gets in the way, then we need to make an exception to get it done. Also today, judges in Florida and Kentucky approved temporary restraining orders blocking laws that place limits on abortions. The move comes after judges also issued temporary halts on abortion bans in Texas, Utah, and Louisiana. It's promising news, but the fight is just beginning. The Washington Post reports several national anti-abortion groups and their allies in Republican-led state legislatures are now advancing plans to stop people from seeking abortions across state lines. The Biden Justice Department has already warned states that it would fight such laws, saying they violate the right to interstate commerce. The Planned Parenthood facility in Fairview Heights, Illinois, about 15 miles from St. Louis, Missouri, where abortion is now illegal, anticipates an additional 14,000 patients every year will seek services in the region now that Roe has been overturned. And joining me now is Dr. Colleen McNichols, Chief Medical Officer of Planned Parenthood in the St. Louis region in Southwest Missouri, and Joan Walsh, National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation. Thank you both for being here. Dr. McNichols, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to put up a map here because it shows where, where you are, where you're practicing, Fairville, Fairview Heights, Illinois, and just how close it is for those who, you know, I love a good map. 
um, just shows how close you are to the Missouri border. But also, you're you're right there, kind of surrounded by states that are either already banned abortion or likely to do so. So the influx is going to be real. What is that going to mean pragmatically for you, for your doctors and your patients? You're right, Joy. Illinois is going to be a critical access state for probably close to half the country. Even in the last 48 hours, our waiting time has gone from just three to four days to two and a half weeks already. You know, um, as folks are going to be looking for, you know, where to to get this care, we're going to be relying on on the state of Illinois to to be able to absorb those those patients. But it's not going to be easy. We're talking about operational changes, increasing hours, going from eight to ten hours a day to maybe twelve hours, and adding Sundays. You know, it's no small feat to be able to add thirty thousand patients to the to the state of Illinois for care. And the truth is the the physical spaces that are already available in Illinois are not what are going to be the the challenge. It's going to be getting people from their homes to those clinics and then back um, just to access that care. That's going to be really problematic. And, And that has to be done, Joan, while some of these states are also passing laws that will criminalize that process. Just taking someone in a car from one place to another, whether it's an Uber driver or someone who just assists somebody by giving them a ride, could be then prosecuted in a state like Missouri. Um, the doctors, you know, who maybe consult online, do like a, a you know, you know how you do like telehealth, um, who consult right. with a woman saying, "How here's how you can be helped. They're trying to criminalize that, basically expanding their abortion bans outside their borders. Um, are people prepared for that? Are, are people in the activist world prepared for that? No, I really don't think they are. But I don't mean that as a criticism because the people in the activist world have have been telling us about this joy for years, as you and I both know. They have been telling us this is going to happen. They're getting rid of Roe. Here are some things we can do. And I mean, you and I listened, but a lot of people didn't listen. And so now I you know, we've got we've got states or or counties getting rid of, uh, you know, plan B, the, you know, the next day, sorry, I made a mistake, contraception, acting like it is abortion. It is not people, but people are getting pharmacies and counties, and I don't think a whole state yet, are getting rid of that. Um, There is so much ignorance about a woman's body, we have to also say that, that these people are going to go all out passing new laws, trying to enforce laws they think are already on the books, and providers are terrified. And, you know, obviously abortion providers are some of the most brave people in our country, but they don't know, you know, they just don't know how this will be either interpreted or expanded. And so we're in a world of pain. Well, I mean, and that's the thing, Dr. McNichols. I mean, you're talking about providers having to take a risk on whether the state they're in will consider what they're doing to be abortion care. If somebody has an ectopic pregnancy, they have to think twice. Do I treat this person? Could I get arrested? Um, You've seen in Missouri the confusion so much that the Republican governor is now putting out saying, oh, no, no, Missouri law has not changed with the legality of contraception. They're not abortions and not affected by the right to life of the Unborn Child Act. Okay, um, you have Missouri Hospital resuming emergency contraceptives. We're talking about the pills, the Plan B pills that rape victims are given. Doctors are getting nervous about prescribing those. And even though this Missouri governor is trying and the, right, the, the, um, the, the, the forced birth people are trying to say, oh, no, no, we don't want to take away birth control. Um, 
those of us who are familiar with the evangelical community and the, that world know they do think that uh, that IUDs are abortifacients. They think that birth control are abortifacients. They think that God should decide if a woman with an ectopic pregnancy lives or dies. They are coming after. I mean, they've signaled it, right? I mean, how afraid are you as a provider that they're going to go for all of it? Contraception, too. Absolutely, Joy. I mean, we've already seen many examples of how the Missouri legislature is coming after things like birth control. Just two years ago, we fought this very issue where the uh, legislator was trying to eliminate access to Plan B and to IUDs for Medicaid populations. We have spent the last 24 hours undoing some massive confusion around the difference between abortion and birth control. And I I 100% agree with you. They are coming for it. But in these moments, it's incredibly critical to make sure that patients have the the, the most up-to-date information and know that they can still get birth control. You know, yeah. medical emergency exceptions, which you talked about too, um, very narrow exceptions, completely unworkable and dangerous. We have doctors out here now contemplating how sick is too sick enough before I can take care of somebody. You know, is one stroke level blood pressure sufficient? Do they have to be bleeding so heavily that they need a blood transfusion before I can take care of them? It is unnecessary and preventable harm to pregnant people on a scale that we won't know the full consequences are for years. Yeah. And these laws are being passed by men who couldn't pass a seventh grade biology test because they don't know anything about women's anatomy. Last word to you on this, Joan. A word for you to those who told us not to be hysterical about the United States Senate or Donald Trump, because there's no way that the Supreme Court would go after Roe, who are now telling us stop being so hysterical about a national abortion ban or bans on contraceptives. Oh, I'm going to be hysterical, and I hope we all will. I'm going to be absolutely hysterical because they will do whatever they can. And I really love the fact that lying liar Brett Kavanaugh, who lied to get his Supreme Court seat, poor Susan Collins, told us, oh, no, we're not coming after contraception or gay marriage. This is, you know, this is going to stop. It's just going back to the states. He's a liar. They're all liars. They are coming after our rights. And it's going to get worse before it gets better, Joy. And they thank all, you to Dr. McKinney. Indeed. You thank you for all that you do. Indeed. I mean, they were on the Bush v. Gore team, and that Supreme Court promised us that was not precedent. And now, look, no. poof, the entire Supreme Court are politicians inside the Republican Party. It's all lies. Don't believe any of it. Uh, Dr. Colleen McNichols, I join Joan Walsh's thanks to you for all you do. And Joan Walsh, my friend, thank you. Up next, the latest on the January 6th investigation, including select committee member Liz Cheney urging Republicans to ditch Donald Trump calling him a domestic threat to the Constitution. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The House January 6th committee is warning allies of the twice-impeached former president about interfering with the ongoing investigation. Today, committee vice chair Liz Cheney said that the panel is prepared to make a criminal referral on anyone who tries to influence witness testimony. That warning follows a speech last night where Cheney excoriated the former president and her fellow Republicans. At this moment, we are confronting a domestic threat that we have never faced before. And that is a former president who is attempting to unravel the foundations of our constitutional republic. We have to choose because Republicans cannot both be loyal to Donald Trump and loyal to the Constitution. Just hours earlier, the committee issued a subpoena to former White House counsel Pat Cipollone. And according to Chairman Benny Thompson, the committee has obtained evidence about which Cipollone, about which Cipollone was, quote, a uniquely positioned to testify. In a joint statement with Cheney, Thompson referenced evidence that Mr. Cipollone reportedly raised legal and other concerns about Pr- President Trump's activities on January 6th and in the days that preceded, adding the committee needs to hear from him on the record, as other former White House counsels have done in other congressional investigations. Joining me now, Charles Coleman, Ju- Charles Truman Jr., a civil rights attorney and former prosecutor. And Charles, let's let's go through this one by one. So Pat Cipollone, he's now subpoenaed. Um, you know, we talk, we've talked about this before, about whether he will testify or not. But what are the sort of litigatable claims if he tried to stop it? If he tried to, you know, try to well, defy the subpoena? Well, the first thing, Joy, that people need to understand that even if Cipollone does ultimately end up deciding to testify, he does have a constitutional right to plead the Fifth Amendment. And I suspect sure. that we may not necessarily hear a lot of testimony out of him if he decides not to cooperate. He decides to show up, but he's not going to say anything. I think that is the middle ground for him. It's something that people need to be aware of. When you saw the testimony given from General Flynn, if you can call it testimony, he pled the Fifth over and over and over again. And so I suspect that there will be a combination of one of two things. He will either plead the Fifth excessively, or he will claim executive privilege. Although the fifth is a stronger defense for him than the executive privilege, because in his case, he was White House counsel, which means that his client was actually the White House, the office of the White House, not Donald Trump. So in that way, you see the committee trying to get around the issue of executive privilege, which has held up conversations with Mark Meadows, for example, and so many other people who were intimately connected to the president as advisors. So I expect that those two things will be his biggest defenses, but that he will rely most heavily on pleading his constitutional right against self-incrimination. You know, it's hard to imagine why he would want to resist other than that he still wants to be an active member of MAGA world somehow in some capacity, uh, because he was on the right side of this. Uh, uh, You know, unlike somebody who might have more reason to be hesitant to come forward under oath. And let's move on to him. And this is uh, Tony Ornato. Uh, Ornato is the one who the right is sort of hanging their whole defense of Trump at this point on him. Uh, and on whether or not he would refute what Cassidy Hutchinson said about all the events that went on, especially that event in the car. Now, the event in the in the it wasn't the beast. It was in the limo, in the um, in the SUV. 
It isn't the most salient point because they don't dispute the fact that Trump insisted in the SUV that he wanted to go to the Capitol. That's the most legally salient point. Um, but you now have the right sort of hanging their hat on it. Former White House aides, however, have said that Tony Ornato, who is an ultra-MAGA loyalist, has lied, at least former White House aides, about events or denied things that have happened. And here's what is said by Alyssa Farah Griffin. Says, Tony Ornato lied about me, too. During the protests at Lafayette in 2020, I told Mark Meadows and Ornato that they needed to warn press stage there before clearing the square. Meadows replied, we aren't going to do that. Tony later lied and said the exchange never happened. Yet Olivia Troy has been on the show a bunch. Tony Ornato, who used to work for uh, Mike Pence, Tony Ornato sure seems to deny conversations he's apparently had. First, the one with Keith Kellogg in I Alone Can Fix It. And now he's denying the story he told Cassidy Hutchinson. Those of us who worked with Tony know where his loyalties lie. He should testify under oath. And now I want to play you one more thing. And this is committee member Stephanie Murphy, the congresswoman from Florida, on Mr. Ornato's deposition, which he gave before. Mr. Ornato, um did not have as clear of memories uh, from uh, this period of time as I would say Ms. Hutchinson did, if that's a fair assessment there. But we're always happy to have folks who have uh, recalled things um, to come back and talk to us. Cassidy Hutchinson told her story under oath. Isn't now the main question uh, whether Tony Ornato is willing to lie under oath for Donald Trump? Is he that loyal that he would lie under oath? Do they not need to put Tony Ornato under oath? Well, I don't necessarily think so. I think from speaking as a former prosecutor, what I'll say is that it's clear that Ornato has some credibility issues. And so whatever comes out of his mouth, if it corroborates what we've already heard from Cassidy Hutchison, then perhaps it may have value. But if it refutes that, there's, there's a number of different reasons or a number of different things that you can point to if, in terms of prosecuting that evidence, if you will, that shows that he has credibility issues and consistency problems. We've already heard from members from the committee that he essentially could not recall certain events. And so now if he comes back under oath and says, well, yeah, I remember this, so on and so forth. As a prosecutor, what I would be saying is, especially if it refutes the point that I'm trying to make, well, didn't you earlier say that you couldn't remember that? So now are you saying that further away from the time period where the events occurred, you remember better than you actually did closer to the time of the events actually having occurred? Mm. You remember more now than you did remember then? So he has all sorts of credibility issues. I think that his, his, his testimony to the committee could be valuable, but I don't necessarily think that the committee needs to hang their hat on things one way or the other. It does, however, expose how important Cipollonio's testimony is in that it becomes a matter of credibility and balancing the word of one person versus the other. So you need another person who was in the room to either corroborate or refute the testimony we've heard from Hutchinson in order to make it more credible. And so that's why hearing from Pat Cipollone is much more important than people realize. Do you do you think that the Department of Justice, because you think hearing from Meadows would be even more important because he's the chief, former chief of staff. Uh, what do you think is the holdup with the Department of Justice? Because there is a contempt, um, you know, referral out there. I think the Department of Justice is really being careful about how they approach this executive privilege issue. They do not want to get embarrassed by trying to do something or force some testimony that ultimately the court decides that they don't have the ability to do. So I think that mm. that's really the big holdup. So they have to figure out, number one, what it is that they can ask, if anything, and how do they narrowly tailor the information that they need to get around the notion of executive privilege in such a way that they get the information that's going to be valuable for whatever they're looking to actually pursue in terms of charges? 
Uh, it's always so fun talking to you, Charles Coleman. I, Charles Coleman Jr. I feel like I, I learned something. It's like my little my little law class. I love it. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you. I appreciate it. All right, thank you. And up next, cheers, up next, a stunning development in the 1955 abduction and murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi and the apparently ongoing legal drama surrounding that case. Wow, stay right there. It has been nearly 67 years since Emmett Till was abducted, tortured, and lynched in Mississippi. After the 14-year-old black boy from Chicago, was, who was visiting family in Mississippi, was accused of making advances at a white woman. In an amazing discovery last week, a team searching a Mississippi courthouse basement for evidence in the case uncovered an unserved 1955 arrest warrant charging that same woman for Till's kidnapping. Included in that team were relatives of Till. They're now calling for the woman, Carolyn Bryant Donham, now in her 80s, to be arrested. Donham was married to one of the two white men who were tried and acquitted for Till's brutal murder, shockingly by an all-white jury. Maybe not so shockingly, given this country's history. They later confessed to the killing. The arrest warrant against Donham was publicized at the time. But get this, the sheriff told reporters that he did not want to, quote, bother Ms. Bryant, since she had two young children to care for. Ah, American history. With me now is Deborah Watts, Emmett Till's cousin and co-founder of the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation. She was part of the team that discovered the warrant. Thank you so much for being here, Ms. Watts. And I want to take you back to that discovery. What were, what were you all looking for in that courthouse and how did you come upon this incredible uh, document? Well, I'll just tell you, it was a team of about five of us and um, this was the second opportunity to search. There was a team that went towards the end of March after we had a meeting with the Department of Justice, the FBI investigator, and the DA Richardson. And so at that time, they told us there was nothing else that they could do. And we knew all along that this warrant for Carolyn Bryant's arrest was never served. Keith Boshop, who is a award-winning filmmaker and was responsible for the investigation that reopened the case in 2004 made sure that we understood that. And so a collective group of us went to the courthouse in LaFleur County, uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, to search for that warrant. And we knew that one, that one bit of evidence had never been served, and we wanted to find it amongst other things that we thought might be there. But we did find it, and we are hoping that this leads to the um, at least the execution of the warrant to Carolyn Bryant Dunham, charging her in the kidnapping and murder of Emmett Lewis Till because she's culpable in that. Without malice, without hate, or without vengeance, we want justice served. And so we were just excited, ecstatic, happy, very emotional at the time when we found it in the lower level of the the Lafleur County uh, courthouse area in the booth yeah. there. Carolyn uh, Brian um, Donham, she, she, you know, the book, The Blood of Emmett Till, which a lot of, which brought a lot of people, younger people um, to this story that only knew about it from, you know, history class, if it's illegal to teach in their state. Um, that In that book, Carolyn Bryant Donham, she actually gave an interview to that author, and then she took back her ed- her previous admissions that she lied about your cousin, about Emmett Till. Um, do you want her arrested and put under oath to get her to under oath, say what she did? Well, we think the evidence speaks for itself. And we think that 
The sheriff needs to serve that warrant to Carolyn Bryant. The DA needs to impale a or impanel, excuse me, a grand jury. And then mm-hmm. they need to bring Carolyn in to be a part of that and indict her being culpable in the murder. Yeah. And first of all, the kidnapping of Emmett Lewis Till. Absolutely. But uh, Carolyn definitely was there. I mean, the FBI investigation uh, and other reports and the admission by Dale Killinger, who was the FBI investigator at the time, he mm-hmm. received an admission from that two other young men had been brought to her to identify them. And of course, we know what happened with Emmett. Those two other young men were accosted. They were thrown out, beat up. Some of them were beat up. And yeah. But Emmett, what happened to Emmett? He yeah. was kidnapped and murdered later. So there yeah. had to be an identification. Brian could be the only person that would do that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the documents that we found, there was an affidavit for her arrest as well. Mm-hmm. Also, the ad of Mose Wright, who identified her. He had to. Right. So they talked to him. And this kidnapping uh, took place, of course, uh, Joy, before the murder. So yeah. justice needs yeah. to be served. It's time and Carolyn needs to be brought uh, to justice. I just want to very quickly, before we run out of time, ask you, I mean, you were what, six, seven years old um, when your cousin was murdered. H- how did, you know, his murder and this historic funeral that uh, Mamie Till um, opened the casket so that the world would have to see the results of it? Were you at that funeral? How did that, his death, impact your family? I was not at the funeral. I was actually a toddler at the time, not quite six, seven years of age, but I heard about it. When Mamie Till Mobley traveled across the country to speak out along with the NAACP, she came to my hometown, Omaha, Nebraska, and I was able to see a booklet that was created by a photojournalist, Ernest Withers, who identified and, and photographed, I should say, the trial and that famous photo of, of Mose Wright pointing at the two murderers. And so I was able to see that and connect the tears the emotions with Mamie's visit and see, even as a toddler, I was able to become emotional about it. But later in years, um, Mamie Tomobi is my shiro. And Mm we oftentimes had conversations about what happened, who was responsible and what kind of justice she wanted. Yeah. She did not want, excuse me. She, she did not. um, I would, I would say this. She didn't want to, have any type of hate towards Carolyn Bryant or vengeance. And we hold that in our hearts as well. We just want justice served, just as we yeah. wanted, just as Simmons She's- wanted it as well. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Deborah Watts, it's such an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much and the best to your family. And we wish you very much luck in this pursuing this case. Um, thank you, Deborah thank Watson. You. Up, thank you. And up next, my thoughts on this historic day as Katanji Brown Jackson is sworn in as justice. Ketanji Brown-Jackson on our deeply troubled Supreme Court. So today was an historic day for the United States Supreme Court. And no, I don't mean the egregious rulings that we've seen coming from the conservatives. For the first time in the court's 233-year history, a black woman sits on the bench as an associate justice. Ketanji Brown-Jackson is only the sixth woman to be seated on the highest court in the land. She replaces Justice Stephen Breyer, who stepped down this morning, then helped swear in his former clerk. 
I, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform, discharge and perform all the duties, all the duties incumbent upon me, incumbent upon me, as an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, as an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. As all of the members of the court, I am pleased to welcome Justice Jackson to the court and to our common calling. Wow, wow. In a written statement, Justice Jackson writes, with a full heart, I accept the solemn responsibility in supporting, of supporting and defending the Constitution of the United States and administering justice without fear or favor. So help me God. I'm truly grateful to be part of the promise of our great nation. And that is tonight's readout. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.